to another episode of Women Rabbis Talk. I am Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. And I am Rabbi Marcy Bellows. And we are joined by Rabbi Karen Kadar as well. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So Emma, what are you thinking about this week? I'm thinking about how cool it is that we're starting to hear from listeners only a few episodes in to our podcast adventure. And it's so exciting to be getting the feedback that we're getting and we're starting to receive questions. And this week we received two different messages from women in the Orthodox world. We hadn't really expected that or thought that that would happen anyway quite so quickly. And it's it's exciting. And also I'm thinking about how one of them sent us a question but asked us to um, not use her name if we ever use her question, which is something I've heard happen on the podcast Unorthodox as well. And it's just been on my mind, sort of this, I don't, I don't know if phenomenon is the right word, but this sort of experience of women or people in the Orthodox world being consumers of non-Orthodox unorthodox media and why they seek it out and how it impacts them in their lives and yeah just really interesting to me and I'm I'm glad we're we're touching so many different kinds of people already it's it's exciting it is exciting I I found myself surprised and I I guess I hadn't even considered the fact of you know, how wide a a net we could wind up spreading, even so early on, and that one of the Orthodox women we heard from didn't even know there could be women rabbis. And that's incredible to me to have that opportunity to open people's eyes, even if ultimately they choose that that's not the expression of Judaism that resonates for them. To know it's out there as a possibility is so beautiful. Definitely. I think the best way we can build bridges between different kinds of groups of people is to know about each other and understand about each other. So it's cool that that is is happening. It wasn't part of our mission statement, but it's it's a cool byproduct. What are you thinking about, Marcy? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about having grown up in suburban Chicago and then worked and lived in Manhattan and Long Island for so long. And now I'm in my fourth year in rural Connecticut, I just am thinking about being a small town rabbi and how that was something I never really pictured for myself. We <laughs> Last night, we had dinner with three of our local police officers who took such good care of us over the high holy days, and they continue to check in on us all the time. And I can't imagine that happening anywhere else where, you know, they'd bring their wives and we'd all have dinner. We had brisket and, you know, kugel and it was amazing. And it's so different to be in an area where we're the only synagogue 20 miles in any direction. If somebody thinks of a Jew, they think of us, you know, like we are, we are it. And if they think of a rabbi, it's, it's me. And that's, you know, very different from Skokie, Illinois, and very different from New York City. And, and also really a powerful experience being a, um, not a big fish, but kind of the only fish in the pond. <laughs> I'm appreciating the experience and the learning and also the responsibility of being that that one rabbi in the area. We have uh, you know, all kinds of interfaith programming that we engage in so that we can have positive visibility, especially as anti-Semitism grows. We want people to know that, you know, the Jews are just like us. Does it scare you at all that 
if people think of a rabbi in town, it's you. I mean, in this day and age, that's a, a different thing than maybe it would have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Honestly, yes. It It is, you know, as we've thought so much about increasing security and locking the doors and the different choices we've had to make in this new world post Pittsburgh. Yeah, that is scary to me. And all I can do is hope that um, we've done enough to demystify who the Jews are. And we've invited enough people into our space to see how, you know, loving and friendly and inclusive we are. I can only hope that the work we're doing uh, reaches the right people and not just the people who are already on board, but the people who might have had some questions about us to begin with. Yeah, I have to say it's it's a weird and scary thing to be outside of America thinking often about all of my rabbi friends in America and worrying about all of you in a, in a really different way. Um, and I think especially those of you who are more likely to be noticed. Um, right, right. And at the same time, here in Cape Town, I'm for the first time in a place where I get recognized on the street because the the community here is still very like tapped into the Jewish newspaper. So people actually like receive the Jewish newspaper and read the Jewish newspaper. And especially in my first year here, I was featured a lot. And so people will sit down next to me in a restaurant and say, oh, you're the lady rabbi. And The lady um, rabbi. And yeah, so it is, it's, I'm not in a small town the way that you are, but I am getting recognized as a rabbi in public for the first time by people who don't otherwise know me. Yeah, it's a, a different experience. I imagine our guest must also get noticed and recognized places she goes. How is that for you? Hello, everybody. <laughs> nice to be here. I do get recognized. And sometimes I don't even know if I know the person because I've been around so long. So when my children were smaller, I used to walk through the mall um, just sort of smiling and saying hello to everybody. And just in case I supposed to have known them and I actually didn't know them. And once my middle child, Shiri, said to me, what do you think you're the queen saying hello to everybody walking <laughs> through the mall? Because people then don't, they feel bad that you don't recognize them because they recognize you. But yeah, for sure I get recognized. I got early training as a rabbi's kid in that as well. The, the <laughs> awareness that people knew who I was and I didn't know who they are. And I'm also really bad at remembering people's names if I'm if I see them out of context. So, you know, if I met you in the JCC and then I see you at the gym, it's I get confused. <laughs> so the best, the best, uh, uh, one of the best advices or, or lessons that anyone ever taught me was the nice to see you instead nice of to see you. nice to meet you because uh, the nice to meet you ends up offending people that you've met before. <laughs> yeah. I'm always employing that. Yeah, but you know, if you do a life cycle with them five years ago and haven't seen them since, yep. uh, it's yep. a little bit of a, for that, for, for them, it's a moment of time you've zoomed in and, you know, had a very intense encounter, um, but it's been five years or four years mm -hmm. or 10 years. And it's good to be, it's good to be, uh, to be able to live in a community and, and offer, offer what we offer. That's Absolutely. True. So as you've already heard. Our guest is uh, Rabbi Karen Kadar, an author, poet, spiritual counselor, inspirational speaker, and the senior rabbi at Congregation BJBE in Deerfield, Illinois. Did I get all of that right? You got it. Thank you. Oh, good. 
So tell us, actually, before you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, tell us what you would like us to call you during this conversation. I love this question. So it's actually a little bit of a story. So after ordination in 1985, I made Aliyah with my husband and our firstborn, Talia, and uh, lived in Israel. Um, and eventually, I, I first was at the Alexander Muss High School in Israel, but then went to work for the reform movement in Israel. And there was one other female rabbi in Israel. I was the first rabbi in the history of Jerusalem, so that was quite a, mm. quite a scandal in Jerusalem. And Kinneret had been working there, Kinneret Shirion. And I said to, and Kinneret, what with the title Rabbanit, because in Hebrew, you're either feminized or masculinized in every word. So in Hebrew, the male rabbi would be Rav, and the female rabbi would be Rabbanit. But I said that Rabbanit was, in essence, a Rebetzin, a rabbi's wife. And we should mm-hmm. ask the formal academy for the Hebrew language at the Hebrew University which is an actual thing because they make up words all the time and bringing Hebrew into the modern period. What do you call a a female rabbi? And they answered, Rabbanit. And I protested. I said, no, that is actually a real position in Orthodox communities, and that's not what we are. Kinneret ended up using the word Rabbanit, and I ended up using the word Rav, the masculine. And then later on, the women rabbis used the word Rabbah, But here's the interesting thing about this. When people would call and I would answer the phone, I'd say, hi, this is Rabbi Harav Karen Kedar. This is Rabbi Karen Kedar. And they would say, hi, Robin, because sound of a female voice did not connect with the word Rav, Rabbi. So if we can't say it, we can't conceive of it. So it's always been a real issue with me. Now, when I moved to America, I made the ideological decision not to do Rabbi Karen but Rabbi Kadar, because in this first generation of rabbis, we wanted them to know that rabbis can also look like this. So for the purposes of this podcast, you can call me anything you'd like, as long as it's polite. um, And (laughs) I will respond the same. If you, Marcy, Emma, we could be on a first name basis happily, but there, there is a story behind it. That's a good story. And um, yeah, I also have had, many conversations with people about the Hebrew alternative to Rav um, and if it's Rabbanit or Rabbah or some other word. That's so interesting that you were in dialogue with the creators of New Hebrew to see if we might come up with another word. It'd be, it's, it's interesting. And then also as, um, as the uh, Orthodox women rabbis come on to the stage with us, onto the bima with us, and are using lots of different words as well for their titles. The conversation seems to be broadening in really interesting ways. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story with us. So Karen, will you tell us um, a little bit more about yourself, why you chose to become a rabbi and your rabbinate, some highlights, anything you wanna share with us? I wanted to be a rabbi when I was eight. So there were no women rabbis back then. I. If you had asked me why I wanted to be a rabbi, my eight-year-old self would have said, I want to know what rabbis know. It looks to me like they know something really, really important. Uh, Nobody really understood that. And so in later years, um, I would say, well, I can be very entrepreneurial if I'm a rabbi. I 
I can teach, I can run a congregation, I could do organizational work, and I can change my mind every few years and still be qualified, which is actually how I built my career. Two, three years here or there, um, having a very long field of interest until I came to BJB, and I've been here 17 years. But when I walked into my mother's kitchen the day I decided to be a rabbi at eight years old, I mean, imagine back then, you know, linoleum, yellow floors and pink puffy slippers and hair all over my face. And I walked and I said, Mom, I, I think I'm going to be a rabbi. And she said to me, that's lovely, dear, but right now you have to get ready for school. <laughs> <laughs> and that that pragmatic of, sure, you can do whatever it is you want in this world, even though they didn't know whether I would be able to do it because there were, there were no women rabbis. You can do whatever you want, but right now you have to do what's right in front of you. Um, is an interesting combination that's kind of helped me evolve my life and my career in general. Yeah, that's so wonderful that she didn't dismiss you or tell you that that was a ridiculous notion. Or Nobody or ever like said no to me until I got to college. Ooh, wow. Oh. And when I got to college, by then Sally had been ordained. And when I got to college, um, people said, you can't do that. You're a woman. Or you can't do that. You're too sexy. Or you can't do that. You're too pretty. Hmm. And are you doing that because you're a feminist? And, hmm. and it was, it was only, but then I was already formed. It was way too late. Too late. <laughs> Did you say all of the above? Right. <laughs> I can do it because all of the above. <laughs> so what, what has your rabbit been like so far? What are some of the highlights? Oh my God. I have to tell you, it's still what keeps me in the game. I still want to be busy every day of my life in the mystery. I want to know what rabbis are busy knowing. And to me, that is, how do you, how do you walk to the edge of what is knowable and what is unknowable and just hang out there mm-hmm. and help people, take people's hands and walk with them? Let me, let me, you know, this is what we know. This is what we can do. And this is what we'll never understand and never know. And you've got a partner in that mystery. So whatever the work, the, the job has been, that's been the work. You know, so the job is what you get paid to do. And, you know, they're kind of a dime a dozen. You could do this or you could do that. I always used to say, well, I could always be a Hebrew teacher in, in a small town. Um, but the work is that, that little piece of spark that God has given you to manifest and change your corner of the world. And if you stay faithful to your work, despite what your job is or what the politics of the job is, then life has a way of evolving in a very beautiful way. It is a great privilege to do what we do. Absolutely. I really relate to that. I just had dinner recently at a congregant's house and they had invited me over specifically because their daughter, who's a a young adult woman, um, has been asking a lot of questions about God and the parents felt perhaps I would be better equipped to answer than, than they felt. Um, so they had me over for dinner and we had an amazing conversation about all kinds of reincarnation and different universes. And it was really out there and, and amazing. And at one point she said to me, is this boring for you? Hmm. And I was like, no, on the contrary, this is, this is the stuff. This is what it's about, you know, loving it every <laughs> second. Because so people would say, so what do rabbis do? When I was, you know, younger in college, after college, graduate school, what do rabbis exactly do? And I said, you know, I'm the girl that brings up God in a bar. (laughs) A rabbi is an attitude. It's a way of walking through this world. It's a way of seeing things. It's a way of being. It's not, 
it's not a job. It's it is it's a perspective. So wherever it is, I I bring it up. Of course, I didn't perhaps have a whole lot of dates back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, totally. I it's such a beautiful thing that you were able to talk to that little girl about it. Yeah, I was just thinking I want a T-shirt that says a rabbi is an attitude, and then. At the end of your sentence, I thought, oh, it's not going to help my dating life to wear that T-shirt. So, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe I'll just wear it to bed. Amazing. And can you tell us about some of the different things that you've done as a rabbi? And specifically, we'd love to hear about um, what it's like to be um, the senior rabbi at a large congregation. Marcy was just telling us a little bit about what it's like to be in a small congregation. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the other side of things? Well, I like I said, I've done a lot of different things. I've taught high school students. I was the regional director for the URJ, um, which was a fascinating view of the world. So I've done a lot of different things in my, in my world. Probably the Alexander Muss High School in Israel was one of my favorite jobs. It was the first job out of school because it was so ideologically based. To be a rabbi of a large congregation is an interesting question. It is... It, it requires not only classical rabbinic skills, the ability to teach, and to preach, and to counsel. It also requires a sense of organization. You have to understand organizational dynamics, uh, to manage a staff, to develop a board, to fundraise, to understand that, to understand systems theories, that, that the other person in the room is this large entity. I, I, it's, it's true also with small congregations, uh, it's true with any institution, but rabbis of large congregations also have to be able, I think, to have a kind of CEO view of the world in addition to the counseling, preaching, teaching, working with teenagers, you know, all the fun stuff that we do. As if we weren't busy enough. I love the organizational stuff, actually. It's really, you know, it, it, it to me, and the crowds are bigger and the the ability is big. I have a staff, so I have people that I can work with. I have a clergy team. When you're a creative thinker and you imagine all kinds of possibilities, when you have a larger mass of people, it's easier to manifest those thoughts. It's diverse. It's fascinating. It's, it's been a great, a great honor to serve BJB. It's interesting to note, and this comes up at WRN conventions and, con and conversations and at CCAR, that there are, although it's ever-growing, there are not as many women who go into the senior rabbi positions. And we're all always kind of speculating, why is that? Is that a congregation's choice? Is that the woman rabbi's choice? Do you have any thoughts on that? There is no question in my mind that there's still gender bias. Mm. Um, when I read the pages of our women's group in, in Facebook and I see that younger colleagues are still being brought into personnel committees and told they're not dressing right, they don't sound right, I'm like, I, I go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I thought we took care of that for you. I'm really, really sorry. I take it as a personal failure. There is no question that there is gender bias on one hand. On the other hand, at BJBE, which is about 1,100 member family units, uh, the senior rabbi is a woman, the senior cantor is a woman, the assistant cantor is a woman, and the assistant or associate rabbi um, is a man. We've had many women presidents. So where there is for sure gender bias, there, there also is for sure opportunity to step into, into the void. Why women choose not to do that might be a life balance 
possibility, but I actually think that in a larger congregation, it's easier to have life balance because you have more support. If my, um, my senior cantor needs to be on the soccer field, we, we got her. They're four clergy. I got it. Go. Go see, go see her play soccer. Or if uh, I have to take my mother to the doctor, yeah, not a problem. We have it. So there's more support. Look, what we do is a lot of work. You don't go into it for a nine-to-five job. Um, so I don't think it's being shy of the work that prevents women from doing it. I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's self-image of the congregation. I, I don't know. But as many doors have been closed to me throughout the years, that's as many doors have been open to me. Mm. Wow. And there are doors that have been closed. And, and your path evolves from the places you're allowed to go and the places that you're denied. It's still a path that evolves. So true. Uh, that's one comment that shows us the profundity of how you speak and how you write. And I think it's a perfect segue into what we were hoping to speak with you more about today, which is your incredible liturgical poetry, which I know I use often in my worship and often give you all kinds of advertisements during services of, if you haven't checked out this book, um, especially during the Omer uh, this past year, you just are such a gifted writer and you have an ability to tap into some very central needs that we all have in prayer. And so to start this conversation, you know, I'd love to hear, you've spoken about your rabbinate. So when did you start writing and what were some of those early uh, moments of inspiration or experiences that led you to choose to add writing to your rabbinate? The same year, to me, it's the same. Hmm. It's just another, I was, my first story I wrote again when I was eight years old. It's funny to think about that. You know, the orange that spoke to me was my first story. I remember when I was a little girl, you remember that the newsprint block paper with the thick, with the, the blue lines and the thick pencils. I remember writing a letter and thinking, oh my God, look what happens when you write a letter and then writing a word and writing a word. Uh, being a writer is just part of who I am. It's a voice that won't be silenced. When I don't write, I feel frustrated and clogged and as if I'm not expressing myself. We talk, we write, we embrace, um, we sit quietly, we have conversations. It's, it's just that natural for me. Do you carry a little notebook with you? How do you keep track of the little moments of inspiration as they come up? I have pens and notebooks everywhere. I've written on napkins and paper um, tablecloths and on airplanes, those little head things that are in back so that I've torn them off and started writing. When a word comes to you, it's, it's almost as if my muse is this child holding, holding out her hand. And sometimes it comes in the, in the form of just one word and this sort of intuitive feeling. And if I don't take her hand, I've, it's as if I've snubbed the divine. But if I take her hand and just let her lead me to what needs to be said, um, then something emerges. Sometimes good, sometimes not good. It, it doesn't matter. It's almost none of my business whether it's good or not. My only business is that I've written it down and then sent it out into the world. And then the people judge whether it, it resonates or not.
I've also had experiences of writing where it feels like I'm channeling something. Totally. But I have to tell you, I I don't mean to interrupt you. I guess I did. No, go ahead. But I have to tell you that also I give sermons without, ironically, I, I do not write down my sermons. Because I'm a writer, if I were to write down my sermons, I'd be very married to the written page. So I write a word and a circle and an an arrow and another word and a circle and an arrow, and I focus on the sermon. So when I go out to give a sermon, it's the same as the writing experience. It's a channeling. It's a, it's, you know, Adonai Sifatai Tiftach, God, you open up my lips. And my part will be to declare the beauty and glory in this world. And my ego, to the extent I can get my ego out of the way and attached to something transcendent, then I'm doing my work. Yeah, it's it's really powerful to hear someone else articulate that in that way. I, I really relate. With all of that in mind and thinking about that sometimes these things just come to you, are there times when you choose more intentionally topics that you want to address in your poetry? And are there any topics that you have dismissed or avoided intentionally? No, I don't avoid anything. And I recommend that everyone who's listening here do not silence their voice ever. Do not avoid a topic step on to the to the stage and declare your truth over and over again full stop period having said all that in a sort of muse kind of mystical way writing is also a practice you just have to kind of show up like any practice like practicing the piano like practicing uh, meditation it's a practice so when i'm in a project i set aside a time um, sometimes um, at one book was 5 30 in the morning before the children woke up another book was thursday afternoons in borders of blessed memory where i would just sit there with uh, with a group and we would write up write together and there would be accountability when I'm in a project, I show up at a certain time, either every day or once a week, depending on, on what my schedule is. And then and then it's focused. The topics find me. I don't find the topics. So at any given time, I have a file open of three or four different books. I could go in this direction or I could go in that direction. And then at some time, at some point, I do a deep dive and pick a topic. You make the experience sound so mystical very zen almost to to mix religious practices. And I know I know I've experienced that certainly around high holy day sermons too where I might go in with one particular idea and something else entirely will pour out. But there's a lot of faith involved in that, in that a message will come out and that there will be words and hopefully beauty and inspiration. What would you say to somebody who's afraid to wait for that or to engage in that process? How would you encourage somebody to push past the intimidation of writing and and embark on it? I love that question. In the spiritual world, the opposite of fear is love. Mm. And there are all, most people have a fearful tape going in their mind all the time. This is dumb. This is stupid. I'm not good enough. My mother said this. My father said that. And then there was that thing that happened to me in fourth grade. And oh my God, this no one's going to hit on and on and on. It's amazing how much negativity runs through our minds all the time, writing or otherwise. The spiritual journey, in part, is acknowledging the negativity and the fear that comes through us without judgment. Hey, well, thank you for the information. That's really interesting. 
and kind of releasing the negative thought like a helium balloon and replacing it with a loving thought. Writing in particular, but in anything. If I sit down and I say, oh my God, this is the stupidest thing I've ever written. I say, thank you for that thought. And I imagine a red helium balloon and I focus back again and I replace it with a loving thought. Ah, that's so, uh, that's beautiful to, to embrace your own wisdom in that way. And to say, you know, I can I can love everything that comes out of me and I can let go of what doesn't feel right. It's a beautiful way to approach the artistic act. Karen, how long did it take you to train yourself to do that? It's a practice, my dear. I'm still doing it. Are you kidding? We teach what we need to learn. <laughs> <laughs> no guru here. I'm still practicing every day. I have become a better iteration of myself for sure. I I turned 63 in March. And one of the gifts of this decade is that you you settle in every decade. You settle in a little bit more to the person that you are, are meant to be if you decide to embark on that journey. But it's a practice. It's just a practice. And it's also surrounding about surrounding yourself with people who will support you on that practice. In, in my first book, God Whispers, I call them sustainers. It's amazing how many of us hang out with people who don't really like us, who criticize us, mm. who don't see our higher good, who reinforce the I can't. We should get rid of those people unless we're related to them. And then that's another conversation. People <laughs> who are in our inner circle should just be people who see our beauty and our higher good, even when we can't. And they sustain us in this journey. We were just talking with Rabbi Jessica Marshall. She was talking about soul tribes. And exactly, I think it's all the same thing. And I I love this repeating theme that is emerging with the conversations that we're having and the different women that we're speaking to about the kinds of supports that we put around ourselves and the different ways of thinking about them and talking about them. It's, it's beautiful. So Karen, what have some of the most edifying results been from your journey with, with writing and with poetry? What's been rewarding and Have there been any unintended or unexpected consequences? You know, when I was writing, in every book I'm writing, I I try to focus on the exact blessing of the moment. If I manage to write this book and no one ever reads reads it, Matovu, it's all good. And if I manage to find a publisher, oh my God, amazing. And if somebody actually reads it, another blessing. So the writing itself is an imperative. It is a spiritual imperative that is unto itself. When it resonates with another person, with when you say something or when you just place your hand on somebody's shoulder or you manage to form words in a way that goes into somebody's heart or awakens their spirit, that's a real privilege. But it's I almost look at it as just, I notice it as I'm witnessing it. it it's never the purpose of doing it. I don't know if that's clear. I don't, it's not what motivates me. I don't motivate I'm not motivated by the end result. I'm motivated by the fact that I believe all of us have been called into this world to manifest the beauty that we have. And I have answered the call. And I've been given a platform to say, hey, this is what occurs to me today. This is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm crying. This is why I'm laughing. Don't be invisible. I see you. I see your need for love. I see your need for joy. I see your pain and I'm holding it. And so the fact that we can manifest our beauty and toss it out into the universe and somebody plays catch with us and holds it, that's 
quite incredible. We feel very lucky to have had an opportunity to see an advanced copy of your uh, soon-to-be-released book titled Amen, Seeking Presence with Prayer, Poetry, and Mindfulness Practice. Even in just perusing it the very at the very beginning of the book, you ask the question, how do we really, truly, authentically amen someone else's prayer, even if it's not our prayer. Um, and even if it's something we either don't relate to, and, and I know I'm paraphrasing your very beautiful words, how did that idea come to you? Can you share with our listeners some of the inspiration for the idea of writing amen? Yeah, you know, sometimes prayer is asking for something, but sometimes prayer is shaking your fist at the heavens and saying, what the hell was that about? And I want to be able to say amen to that prayer as well. Sometimes it's quiet and sometimes it's loud and boisterous. Sometimes it's musical and sometimes it's wordless. And I want to be able to say amen to any way a person expresses their desire to dance with the divine, to touch the edge of heaven and say, hey, there's something bigger than myself. I'm not in the center of my universe. Amen to that. So the, the book is, um, is that kind of expression. It is, it's poems, it's prayers. I actually, I'll tell you a secret. I don't really know the difference between a poem and a prayer. Um, so I just decided to say, well, you judge. Is this a poem or is this a prayer? So it's poems, it's prayers. There's also a section in the book called Focus Phrases in which I offer phrases that one can repeat like hold space or my cup is overflowing or... Surely goodness and mercy are pursuing me. And I offer different phrases, some from the liturgy and some from my own, so that when we have that fear thought, you could take this phrase and, and use this as something that you're meditating. I also have a section in the book on questions. What is the great question of your life? What's the question that your life has been trying to ask you? The, the characters, the ins, the outs, the failures, the successes. And so I have a section on on questions that you can offer. I call it playing catch with the universe. Hmm. You kind of ask the question and you don't bother with the answer. And you just pose the question over and over and over again. And eventually in the line of a pharmacy or while taking a shower or in conversation with somebody, answers will come to you. And that that veil that, that sometimes obscures meaning will peek open and you'll see an answer to a divine question that you've asked. It's a, it, it was a great book to write. It's a little bit different than anything that I've written before. There's much more liturgy and poetry in it than there is prose. May I share one of the writings? Oh, I'd be honored. Thank you. One that stood out to me, and now I, I have all these other layers based on what you've been sharing today. The poem, The Prayer, Only This. You write, I ask of you, O God, only this. Grant me a curious mind, an agitated conscience, an open and discerning heart, a surrendering spirit. And then, and then I shall become a servant of the holy good. Oh, and that just, I don't know, I felt like that opened something in me to read that. Wow, the union of Karen's words and Mercy's dramatic reading oh. is pretty moving. <laughs> Thank you. I feel very... Very moved to be sitting here with both of you. I also um, was reading through in advance of this conversation and what jumped out at me was just a phrase where you describe God as the context. I love that. And I, I don't know what it means yet. I'm going to be thinking about it for a while. I'm chewing on it. 
it stopped me. I thought, oh, that's interesting. God as the context. So I can't wait to read more. And I'm sure many people will be chewing on the beautiful ideas that you are putting out into the world with this book. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was nice that CCR Press published it and it'll be available on Amazon any day now. So I appreciate you referencing it. And you also thank your congregation in the acknowledgments and their support. And I imagine that that must be so important when you have work that some congregations may view as um, a side project or as something that's taking them away, taking you away from them, instead that they view it as a gift you give to them because you bring back so much. How has that been for you to experience that? How lucky is this? But I will tell you, from the day that I started BJBE, I mentioned this. I said, and we are all, all the clergy and all the staff, we're going to have national profiles. You're going to love that because it brings honor to BJBE and we bring beauty back to BJBE. We have our congregational work and we have an obligation to be uh, a member of the larger society and be an active leader in the larger society. And our my, my congregation totally embraced that thought. Go study this and come back and tell us what you've learned or write this and teach us what you need to know. My cantor is on the ACC board and, and the rabbi is on the, on the RAC commission. And, uh, and we all, the, my educators on her board, we all take national profiles. And I believe in that so strongly. And just as we shouldn't be fear-based our congregations shouldn't be fear-based. Oh my God, you're taking away from us because there is no such thing as taking away. It's all good. It's all additive. So Karen, we have a segment each episode called Ask the Rabbi, where we've had people submit questions that they've always wanted to ask a rabbi or especially a female rabbi. And our question today comes from Zach Aaron. And he asks, how far are we from the gender slash gender identity of a rabbi being universally viewed as irrelevant? So what do you think about that? When will it be irrelevant? Never. Um, I don't think I aspire to irrelevancy on every and any particular level. Um, gender conversation is very, very fascinating. We were just at the wall in Israel in Jerusalem with a group of teenagers. And the boys went to the boys' side and had a very enlightening experience. And the girls went to the girls' side and they walked away, a group of them, in, in a lot tears, just tears. And I've been doing this a lot of years, so my assumption was it was the pluralism is, uh, issue. Why are the men and women separated? And it was a hot summer day, and we found a little stairwell in which we could find some, uh, some shade, and we were all crowded together, and the girls were sobbing, and they said, I don't identify as male or as female. There was no place for me at the wall. And... It was a first for me. And why did I have to wear a skirt? And why did I have to cover? And there is no place because I don't identify. And we sat there for an hour. Any educator knows you don't move a group, particularly of teenagers, until you resolve it. Until one of the boys said to me, oh, my God, Rabbi, we totally won. I said, why did we win? He said, you know how in our religious school, our Jewish learning center, we have this, this wall in which people put prayers in? I said, yeah. 
He said, and you know how we took the prayers out and we brought them to Jerusalem to the wall? I said, yeah. And he said, and you know how you handed out the prayers and the blessings to each of us? I said, yes. He said, well, I don't know if I got a girl's prayer or a boy's prayer. And I put it in the men's section. And Rachel didn't know if she got a boy's or a girl's. And she put it in the women's section. And we won. And the girl said, yeah, we totally won. And I said, awesome. Let's go eat shawarma. <laughs> wow. So, so that's not making gender irrelevant, the, the yeah. fluidity. Um, I don't think any truth of who I am is irrelevant to who I am. Now, will people ever stop making choices based on gender? Of course not. They won't make choices based, they'll, they'll always make choices based on age and gender and looks and what you said and what you didn't say and how you remind them of their uncle that they like or that they don't like. There are all kinds of subjective things that go into how we evolve, but certainly we can come to a time where discrimination has been quieted. Yeah, and we've had some really interesting conversations recently with some of our other guests about how important it is that, or, well, I don't know if we said in those conversations that it was important, but my takeaway was that it's important that that we, you know, we teach Torah as women because we are women, even when we're not intentionally trying to come at it from that lens, but it's part of who we are and we see Torah from our own perspective and the perspective that we have is the perspective of women. The more conversations we have like that, the less I would want us to move away from being able to bring those parts of ourselves to bear on how we teach and how we interpret Torah and how we rabbi and all of those things. Yeah. So the last thing we like to take our guests through is our questionnaire Meher, which is a sort of rapid fire questions that we have prepared for you. Are you ready? I am ready. Great. Who was your first woman rabbi, um, either in your home synagogue or that you were first aware of? I didn't know any women rabbis. The first time I saw one was at rabbinic school in Jerusalem. We were students. Tell us about a woman that inspires you, Jewish or otherwise. Beyonce. I'll tell you why. Because at some point, she left Destiny's Child, even though those were her best friends, to step on the stage to evolve as herself. And I find it interesting where people find the courage to become who they're supposed to be. Fill in the blank. Being a woman rabbi is, or women rabbis are... Incredibly amazing. What do you think would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? Oh, God, that's a hard one. How it really um, it really matters who you partner with, really makes a difference who you partner with in, in the ability to do your work. Cool. I have so many follow-up questions, but it's our rapid-fire questions, so I'm going <laughs> to keep going. Um, favorite Jewish character from a book, movie, or TV show? Superman, a character that's Jewish. He was written by Jews. I like Superman. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Superman. A Jewish text teaching or value that inspires you or informs your life. I love from Psalm 23 that I am being pursued by goodness and mercy mm-hmm. all the days of my life relentlessly. I love that translation, which is a little bit different from what the Sudarim, the prayer books uh, often give us. What are you thinking about these days? 
I'm thinking about a spiritual direction, which is a new field um, in the Jewish world in which we can hold space for a people who are exploring their spiritual life. I feel like we could keep talking with you for hours. None and of we these don't are have particularly hours. rapid. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I wonder if that's like a um, a particular rabbinic failing that we can't really ask or answer uh, short form questions. <laughs> and it's going to be out there in the world that Beyonce is one of my stars. That's so funny. That's fantastic. No, that's awesome. Hey, she had a lachlacha moment. Um, <laughs> well, Rabbi Karen Kadar, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your beautiful, inspiring wisdom with us, your leadership, your koach um, to be one of the trailblazers of the women uh, who have become rabbis alongside you and after you uh, and for taking time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You two are amazing. And may the force be with you both. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Amen to that. <laughs> Karen, how can our listeners find you or reach you? Uh, my website is karenkadar.com, K-A-R-Y-N-K-E-D-A-R. Or they can, um, they can find me on Facebook. I have a rabbi page. I hope they take a look at the book. Amen. Seeking Presence with Prayer, Poetry, and Mindfulness Practice. Amen. Amen. Can you hear its own? <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Rabbis Talk. You can be in touch with us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash women rabbis talk and Instagram at women rabbis podcast or by sending us an email at women rabbis podcast. That's women rabbis podcast at gmail.com or you can even leave us a voicemail with your questions and suggestions at anchor.fm slash women rabbis podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and please don't forget to submit your Ask the Rabbi questions. Thanks as well to Seth Lindenman and to John Claude Haynes at C. Robin Tech for their help with sound, tech, and editing. Our music is written by Aviva Chernick and performed by Jaffa Road. Our podcast is hosted on Anchor.fm and is available on your favorite podcast platform, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, review, and of course, return and join us again soon. And a big thanks to you, Marcy. Oh, and thanks to you, Emma. And with that, we are out. Lahitraot. Amazing.